I'm Salima Hamarani, and on today's Making Contact. In Sitwe, Burma, on the outskirts of where the Rohingya used to live, sits a sprawling IDP camp, or a camp for internally displaced people. In 2012, the Burmese military and anti-Rohingya vigilantes began a reign of terror against villages, burning, raping, and killing. The remaining Rohingya were herded together and forced into the IDP camps. This man is one of the survivors. With no jobs, no human rights, we are unhappily living in this camp. Other communities can move everywhere. So we cannot move. So this, is, this condition is like an uh, uh, animal. Just our life is like animal's life. He's in the camp with his entire family. And while they wait to be released, their lives falter. My life is destroyed. I'm 38 years old. So I have four children. I'm thinking I'm afraid of my children's future life. My life is destroyed. It's no problem. They can't leave. They have no jobs, no education. Armed guards patrol the borders with rifles. They receive food rations once a month, which most of them sell for firewood, which means they often go hungry. The situation weighs on the camp residents, even as they organize and try to fight back. How can we get our human right and also our justice? Rations, segregating people according to race, armed guards. If that sounds familiar, it should. They're markers of what we call concentration camps. One thing I always like to say up front whenever I'm talking to people is we are not talking about Auschwitz, we are not talking about death factories, and maybe we'll get to that later. But in the beginning, you know, that hadn't been invented, that idea hadn't been invented. So what a concentration camp is, first of all, not prisoners of war, but civilians, so not combatants. Uh, and it's the mass detention of civilians without a trial, usually on the basis of race or ethnicity or religion or political affiliation something someone belongs to rather than anything that they've done. In fact, recognizing the signs of a concentration camp is important because, according to Andrea Pitzer, the world is currently swimming in them. Uh, you really see, as the Cold War rises, that colonial camp system, along with the communist camp system, sort of dividing the world. Everybody's doing camps. Everybody is doing camps. China has camps for Uyghurs and political opponents. The United States has camps for immigrants. North Korea has camps. And that's what we're going to talk about today on Making Contact. How exactly did we get here? Andrea Pitzer wrote an entire book on the topic called One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. We're going to take a look at the rise of the concentration camp and how it became an almost permanent institution around the world. It was actually a book I wanted to read that didn't exist. And when I was working on my first book, which was the uh, 
political biography of Vladimir Nabokov, the guy who wrote Lolita. His brother had died in a German concentration camp, and concentration camps from World War I came up in his work and the Soviet gulag. And it just led me to think, when did this idea of a concentration camp and this phrase enter the world, and how did that become an okay thing to do? So before we dive into the history of concentration camps, let's talk about some of their defining features or what sets them apart. Because in some ways, concentration camps and modern-day prisons are very similar. One of the things that happens with a lot of big camp systems is they kind of become their own little worlds. So you actually had solitary confinement quarters and sometimes jails inside big concentration camp systems. What separates it from a prison in general is that in prison, in theory, people are supposed to have had trials. They were supposed to have had some chance to present some kind of defense, whereas a concentration camp is usually an end run around that process. Sometimes you had people rounded up as a group, for instance, the British in Kenya, and they would sometimes have a judge sentence 300 people all at once in a field, which is not a real trial. And then there's the inescapable death count. Even though they didn't use bullets and nooses and hangings, disease, malnutrition, and just the terrible conditions that they were in, the hardships that they faced, were enough to kill so many people. And most of them were women and children. So we're going to do a very fast overview of a profound history, which most people have never heard of. But stick with us. There's links on our site for more information on each camp system, just in case you're interested. So phase one, the creation of the first concentration camp. There are probably dozens of ancient examples of governments rounding up ethnic groups and isolating them. The Native American reservations here in the United States, for example. But the first real use of the term concentration camp was used by the Spanish in Cuba. And that's where Andrea Pitzer starts her book, In Cuba, in 1896. So what a concentration camp was uh, in Cuba in the 1890s was it was a way to fight rebels that had been going for 30 or 40 years. The Cuban insurgency wanted to fight off the Spanish colonizers. And for a while, they were winning. They'd attack the Spanish military and then melt back into the countryside where they lived with their families, often as farmers. So it was impossible for the Spanish to isolate the rebels. That is, until the Spanish government sent a man to Cuba named Captain General Weiler. And Weiler was already nicknamed the Butcher and wanted to have as free a hand as possible going in. And he came in and instituted this first in one region and then across much of Cuba. It was a very deliberate move that was understood to be as harsh as possible. And interestingly, Weiler even compared it to what Sherman had done uh, in the South during the Civil War. And this was how he justified it to America was, I'm not doing anything different than what you've done. So what did Weiler do exactly? Instead of catching those guerrillas that were actually fighting them, they decided it was easier to just round up all the civilians, put them behind barbed wire, and then everyone who was left could be shot as a guerrilla. It was a more efficient way to deal with uh, isolating these guerrillas and keeping them from resources. From the beginning, you know, it was part of this military strategy. It was also punitive. I mean, it was hard on these people to see their families and their fellow countrymen rounded up and starving in these camps. Because even though they weren't death camps, these camps in Cuba, which were only open for about two years, ended up killing, most estimates run about 150,000 people, which was about 10% of the island's pre-war population. So it was a huge toll. 
but the camps weren't happening in secret. Many Cubans who fled in the 1890s came to the U.S. and started to organize a publicity campaign. And at the same time, international journalists went to Cuba, writing exposés of the conditions in the camps. A Harper's Dispatch said that the prisoners were penned up in starvation cages. Illustrations of the dead filled the global news. And that had an effect here in the United States. The idea of independence, you know, it hadn't been quite as long ago as it's been for us today from the Revolutionary War. And this idea of people throwing off the yoke of a European power, there was a romantic idea to it as well. But McKinley, who was president at the time, came out very clearly before we entered the Spanish-American War And he used reconcentration in his call to Congress to go to war uh, very explicitly. He said that this was a policy not of civilized warfare, but of extermination, and that it basically would lead to nothing but the wilderness and the grave. It would lead to no peace but that of the wilderness and the grave. So he denounced it sort of from the highest platform that a president can denounce it. Eventually, the ongoing insurgency and the involvement of the U.S. led to the closing of the camps. But then something interesting happened. Well, we did go to war with Spain, and we beat them pretty quickly. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of Spain as a significant empire. And we inherited a lot of their colonial possessions. And one of the things that we then took and decided not to give independence was the Philippines. And so we got involved in a conflict very much like the one that Spain had been involved in, in Cuba. And instead of taking the position that these camps would be bad and that independence would be a good thing, There was a real sense of, this is actually the conflict that the phrase white man, the burden, comes from. There was a sense that we needed to civilize the Filipinos. There was a sense that we needed to keep power around the world. And this is sort of when America becomes an empire and rises in place of Spain. And we instituted our own camps, you know, within a couple years after McKinley had denounced them. Far fewer people died because they were only open a few months before the uh, guerrillas surrendered. But it's estimated that more than 11,000 deaths were directly attributable to just a few months of these camps being open. That's right. After loudly denouncing the Spanish camps in Cuba, the United States opened their own in the Philippines. And soon after, the rest of the world followed our example. Camps of this type, colonial camps, exploded. Yeah, so in the first decade, it really happened in really four main colonial locations around the world. Southern Africa, there were two. The Germans had some in what was Southwest Africa then, now called Namibia. It was in the wake of a genocide there against the Herero and Nama people. There were the camps you mentioned in the Boer War in Southern Africa, the Cuban camps and the Philippine camps. Like the original Cuban camps, they were meant to contain anti-colonial insurgency. So torture, starvation, disease were persistent. And we don't have time to cover everything that happened in them, but for a while, that were so deadly that they affected the way the world thought about concentration camps. The idea kind of became repugnant that a civilized nation wouldn't really do this. And that's why they sort of fell away. But there's this moment in World War I, right before World War I, where there's almost no camps in the world. I think it's important to recognize that we did have this one moment in our collective history without the brutality of concentration camps. But the respite didn't last. Phase two of concentration camps, World War I. Suddenly, almost every country in the Western world involved in the war began using what we now call internment camps. 
Yes. So England and Germany both started out rounding up people that they thought were spies. And that was not unusual. That's something that had been done in previous years. In most countries, there's a lot of legal room to lock up suspected spies during wartime. But what was kind of new was this idea, I'm not just suspecting you individually for something you've done and you individually for something you've done, but because you're German or because you're British. And I want to point out here that internment sounds like a nicer word, but an internment camp is a concentration camp. And that spread to six continents just over the course of World War I. And then suddenly it became normal to do this to people. And not that many people died in those World War I camps compared to camps like the Cuban camps and the Philippine camps. So it kind of rehabilitated this idea that somehow if you gave some people some books to read and you didn't shoot them, that it would become innocuous, you know, really took root. And then between World War I and World War II, you have camps everywhere. They spring up locally. They spring up internationally. People use them for vagrants. It just becomes accepted. So I think the danger is we think that there's some kind of safe way for particularly for a democracy, to lock up civilians and detain them without trial just on the basis of identity, as long as we're not killing them on purpose, and that somehow that can be done justly or appropriately or safely. But what we've seen is again and again in the past, things like World War I opened the door for things like the Soviet gulag and the Nazi camps. And don't forget, at that time, Britain was a huge empire. So when the British decided to do this, they were doing it all around the world. So suddenly you went from almost no camps anywhere in the world to most established countries having some kind of system by which they would register, round up, give numbers to, and indefinitely detain civilians that they did not actually suspect of committing any specific crimes. It normalized it around the world. And just as importantly, it built a bureaucracy for it. The bureaucracy to track and register people paved the way for registration in Nazi Europe. It also got people used to the idea of turning yourself in for incarceration. Because even though you were sent to a horrible, demeaning prison after having committed not a single crime, you usually didn't die. It was temporary. They came back out. And so people said, oh, if we just, in a moment of crisis, we've been picked as a pariah, but we know we're not really pariahs. If we go along with the government, we let ourselves be detained, then they're going to let us go once this crisis passes. And I think that... Uh, this is first and foremost one of the answers to people who wonder, why did people turn themselves in and go to camps in Nazi Germany? It's important to remember that in the first years, the camps weren't death camps at all. Most people who went in did actually come out. I think the numbers are in the high 90 percentiles for the first five years of Nazi camps, even Nazi camps. So many people ended up in internment camps that even Leon Trotsky found himself locked up in Canada. He was in New York. I think he was working as a newspaperman right before he tried to return to Russia because the revolution was starting without him and he wanted to get back and lead it. And so he got on a boat and was heading back to Russia and he was picked up. He was picked up in Canadian waters and he was taken to a Canadian detention camp. And he actually got intervention from Kerensky, who was the head of the provisional government in Russia at that time. And he was released. But one of the first things he did uh, in the months that followed was to write a pamphlet about so much for democracy and how awful this was that he'd been in this camp and how ridiculous it was. And that pamphlet was distributed to all the people on the front lines in the Russian Civil War that were fighting on the Red Army side. Trotsky was detained in a concentration camp. I want to reiterate that because of what he does next when he finally gets back to Russia to help with the revolution. 
And interestingly, within a few months, he had recommended putting people in just those kinds of camps, targeting people who were against the revolution in Russia and putting them in those camps. They start locking up their own population. So this is sort of a new moment in the European non-colonial setting you have where countries are not just locking up enemy aliens and foreigners as they had been in World War I. They're locking up their own suspicious subsets of civilians. So again, we have another example of someone arguing against concentration camps being used by someone else, and then they turn around and create their own camp system. This really amazed me, and I think it drives home the seduction and the power of the concentration camp idea. The Russian gulag and the Nazi camps happened almost at the same time. I think of this as phase three. The gulag took a while to become a concrete institution, and Russia had always had work camps. But the revolution's concentration camps were extremely brutal, even in the earliest years. People then are starting to starve to death, and you're weeding out the weak populations. And about three or four years after that, right, 1929, 1930, we have the formal establishment of the gulag, which puts these principles into just much more lethal effect. In the gulag, much like the Nazi camps, life expectancy plummeted. People slowly starved to death on meager rations. They did back-breaking labor, often from 12 to 16 hours a day, building roads and infrastructure in freezing temperatures. They had no heating. They were often beaten and raped. They slept 12 to a room or more, and disease ran rampant. The average lifespan of a detainee in the gulag was two years. Two years. Between 1.5 and 1.7 million people died as a result of detention from 1930 to 1953. And if that seems like an extremely violent way to deal with dissent, it is. The entire system was built on paranoia, which is actually a hallmark of concentration camps. Somebody who was the head of the secret police three years later might die in a camp after having been sentenced there. And I think that that's one of the things that's important to realize about these camps is it's never just one person's vision. It becomes its own system and almost a self-perpetuating system. And it can eat up anything. I mean, this is one of the things that's most dangerous about it. You're listening to Andrea Pitzer, author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. And this is Making Contact. Subscribe to our podcast at radioproject.org. Make sure you don't miss out on new shows and behind-the-scenes information. Go to radioproject.org and check out the Stay in Touch section. And now, back to our show. Welcome back to Making Contact. We're listening to an interview with Andrea Pitzer, author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. In the first half of the show, we looked at the early history of concentration camps, starting in Cuba and ending with the Russian Gulag, around the end of World War I. So what happens after World War I? The fateful hour of 11 has struck, and Britain's final warning to Hitler having been ignored, a state of war once more exists between Great Britain and Germany. World War II and the rise of the German camps. These are the concentration camps we think of when we hear that term. For a while, the Nazi camps and the Gulag camps, which were open at the same time, were the most deadly prison system the world had ever known. 11 million people died in just the Nazi camps, 
at least six million of those were Jewish. But in the beginning, the Nazi camps were not aimed at the Jewish population. So the first people they targeted were people in the Reichstag, their sort of Congress, that had opposed them, that belonged to these far-left parties. But eventually, the targeted populations grew and grew. They used them in the mid-30s for vagrants on the street, for homeless people. They would throw criminals in there after they had served their sentences because they were getting so much criticism for having so many political prisoners. They just threw a bunch of criminals in to sort of dilute the political prisoner numbers. They threw in homosexuals. They also targeted the Roma or Sinti people, communists, Jehovah's Witness, alcoholics, drug addicts, the disabled and the autistic, anyone who didn't fit their Aryan ideals. Nazi plans for the Jewish population, at least at first, were different. Their idea for the Jews from 19, early 1920s up was to get them out of the country. They wanted them gone from Germany. They were using their legal system, not the extra legal system of the camps, but their actual legal system to target Jews. So Jews were stripped of citizenship. They weren't allowed to own a whole bunch of appliances. They weren't allowed to be in these parks. They weren't allowed to be doctors. They weren't allowed to use public hospitals. They just made regulation after regulation after regulation that made it almost impossible to live and be a Jew in Germany. And this pattern happens up until about 1938 in November when you have this orchestrated terror called Kristallnacht. And synagogues were trashed, uh, shops were broken into, all kinds of damage was done. And then the German government actually fined the Jews for what had been done to them. And this was a real attempt to terrorize them and to get them to leave. And that is the first time you have a huge roundup, tens of thousands, just in the space of days, of Jews were rounded up and put in concentration camps. But even then, out of those tens of thousands of Jews who were put in camps, almost all of them had been released. And then two things happened, which was one, the world didn't really respond in a significant way to Kristallnacht. And I think the Nazis began to realize that they might be able to do other things. And the other thing that happened was that now Germany in 1939 was moving through Poland. And now it was moving through territory that was not one or two percent Jewish, but was majority Jewish. And so then it's in that window from 39 to 42 where you start to see this idea of the final solution beginning to emerge. The final solution, as it came to be known, turned places like Auschwitz into outright death camps with firing squads and gas chambers, the end product of generations of growing anti-Semitism and Nazi fascism. But increasing violence and death over time is also a symptom of concentration camps. And of course, the longer those camps are open, the more time they have and the more ability they have to turn the camps to other ends. And this is, of course, what we see with the Nazis particularly. It's one of the reasons Andrew Pitzer says that we have to close them as soon as possible before they become entrenched and more violent. The average age expectancy in Auschwitz, for example, by the end of the war was just a few weeks. After World War II, the world promised to never again let genocide happen never again use concentration camps, never let another Holocaust occur. But we started this episode of Making Contact talking about modern-day concentration camps. So what happened? The world sort of reset in 1945, and it's partly because you had the Cold War binary thing, right? It's Russia versus the U.S. And so you were either communist or you were anti-communist. And if you were communist, then you had these big camp systems that were modeled on the gulag. And if you were anti-communist, 
then you would develop these colonial sort of anti-rebellion camps that had been from 50 years before. This is phase four, the phase we're in today. And these new concentration camps worry Andrea Pitzer. The continuation of the old camps that concern me are this idea we talked about from the beginning of isolating the guerrillas, isolating the terrorists by rounding up a bunch of people. And I think it's worth knowing that Guantanamo, for instance, started as a mass detention for asylum seekers. And the sort of room, the wiggle room that the government was given to hold people there was the very basis on which it became a torture site ostensibly for terrorists after 9-11. So this idea of the terrorism, we also see reflected again in these Uyghur camps. The Chinese have realized that if you say people are terrorists, then there's very few countries that are going to say, no, you shouldn't deal with this Muslim terror threat. And so this becomes a fig leaf to cover in China. The lowest numbers I'm seeing now are more than a million, and the highest numbers are in the millions of Uyghurs that have been detained. And there's other minorities as well, Muslim minorities that have been detained. And so this terror threat, I think, continues to be a way in which you can run pretty brutal and torture-filled camps and get a pass from the world. I was taken to a cell, which was built underground with no windows. There were cameras on all, all four sides so the officials could see every corner of the room. There were around 60 people in one of the cells where I was held. At night, 15 women would stand up while the rest of us would sleep sideways. You're listening to the testimony of Miracle Turson, who spoke in front of Congress in November of 2018 about her experience in the Uyghur re-education camps. Her testimony was read through an interpreter. I also experienced torture in a tiger chair the second time I was detained. I was taken to a special room and placed in a high chair. Bands held my arms and the legs in place and tightened when they pressed a button. The guards put a helmet on my shaved head. Each time I was electrocuted, my whole body would shake violently and I could feel the pain in my veins. But Andrea Pitzer doesn't feel as if it's hopeless. And her sense of hope was surprising to me. I had asked her, what's it like to learn all of this history and watch it repeat? The same patterns, the same hatred, the same torture and abuse of dissidents and ethnic minorities. And she told me, the thing is, these grand designs, mass imprisonment, rounding up entire communities, disappearing people, they require our complicity. Well, my brother, when I was writing this book, said, isn't it just terribly depressing that humanity comes around again and again to this? How do you have the spirit to write this book if this is where people always end up? And it made me think, because actually what I found was that a government has to actively train people to accept this. So it has to train guards and harden them to be willing to do these kinds of things to people. And it also has to train a population to be willing to allow people to be locked up this way. So the good news is it doesn't just happen spontaneously. We don't always return to this. The bad news is we're really susceptible to the kind of propaganda that lets governments and parties make us believe that this is necessary. So that's really where we have to, I think, focus if we want to keep this from happening is on that propaganda that sells people on the idea that 
other human beings are animals or that they're filthy or that they represent a kind of crime danger that is just invented or that they are somehow subhuman. These are the things we hear again and again. And I heard them from people who were in favor of some of the camps we have today. For instance, when I was in Myanmar, I heard exactly this language. This is language we hear from the president and camps rely on it in order to exist. I think concentration camps are going to be really hard to eradicate, but any system is vulnerable to it. So just because you're a democracy doesn't mean you won't do this. But if you're a democracy, there are more levers that are possible to undo it. You were just listening to Andrea Pitzer, author of One Long Night, A Global History of Concentration Camps. And before we end our show, we just want to thank Music in Exile for letting us use Abdul Mozit's song, which started the show and was recorded in a Rohingya refugee camp in Bangladesh. The Making Contact team includes Monica Lopez, Anita Johnson, Sabine Blazin, Lisa Rudman, Aisha Chowdhury, Dylan Hoyer, and I'm Salima Hamarani. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. <laughs>